One day in November, I bring a radio to room 20 because I think Garage likes music. I've seen him sometimes turn his head toward the TV, high on the wall across from his bed when music plays. I find a Spanish language station playing something that sounds happy. Garage seems to have good days and bad days. On the good days, he smiles a lot and reaches for the baby toys I bring. On the bad days, he has tears in his eyes and stares straight ahead, like he's in a trance. Then one day, Garage is sick. How did you know he was sick? He has a He has an infection and is getting antibiotics intravenously through a needle in his ankle. So why do you have to put the IV in his foot? You cannot find it anywhere. What's up? You cannot find You can't find a vein anywhere the vein. else? The infection is serious, the kind of infection that can kill someone on life support. If Garage gets too sick, he'll be transferred to the intensive care unit at the small hospital across the street until he's well enough to return to the villa. The state of California pays for all of this through Medi-Cal. So far, Garage's care has cost more than $4 million. I'm Joanne Farian. This is Chapter 3 of Room 20, a new podcast from the LA Times Studios. It's about a man called 66 Garage, who lay in a hospital bed for 15 years, unidentified, and about how my search for his name and the circumstances that put him in a San Diego nursing home changed not just his life, but my life too. Garage gets better after a few days when the antibiotics kick in. Not long after, he gets a new roommate, Omar Salgado, and the middle bed is no longer empty. Omar is in his early 20s. He was riding his bike without a helmet on a dark California highway when he was hit by a car going 55 miles an hour. And then he was run over by a second car. He's thin and frail. His thighs are the size of a man's forearm, just skin over bone. His left hand is clenched in a fist. His large brown eyes are fixed on the ceiling, and he's shaking. No one at the villa, including me, expects Omar to live more than a few months. I do my best to ignore him. I feel as though he's dying before my very eyes, and I can't bear to watch. And so often, I have my back to him as I sit next to Garage's bed. Garage looks so full of life compared to Omar, I write in my journal. I couldn't have been more wrong. Hello, Mr. Kirkpatrick. Uh, my name is Bill Garcia, and I'm a California licensed investigator. That's a voicemail a private eye left on Ed Kirkpatrick's phone. He's the nursing home's administrator, and I'm listening to it in his tiny office. It's an old message, one of many Ed got when I did those early reports about Garage back in 2015. The private eye thinks Garage looks like someone he's been trying to find since 1991. Uh, he's got a lot of the attributes that uh, would be him. I'd like to be able to uh, visit with you and also visit with him. After my first stories were published, Garage caught the media's attention. His unusual name and circumstances. An unnamed guy kept alive with machines for 15 years. We got like dozens of calls and letters from people saying, oh, this is my son, oh, oh, I think this is my husband. Garage became an international curiosity. Now to a San Diego mystery that has stumped medical professionals 
for more than a decade. In Coronado, nursing home employees have cared for a man for years, but they have no idea who he is. That's when the letters and calls started coming into Ed's office. They were heart-wrenching, uh, gut-wrenching. Uh, you know, families who had lost contact with their loved one and they didn't know anything, you know, where they were, they'd disappeared, they'd send pictures, they'd send information about what, where they think they were and what they were doing. Someone left a handwritten note at the nursing home with just an address and a few words. Hole on the bottom of feet, buttocks large mall. Desperate mothers and fathers shared their most personal details about their sons. Was never vaccinated as a baby. He was not circumcised. He has not known tattoos, piercings, birthmark, or dental work. Birth certificates, vaccination records, church confirmation papers, and DNA records all arrived on Ed's desk. One man sent the only photo ever taken of his missing son. And there were the pleas. Through this message, I address you so that you might help me find my son, who unfortunately left searching for the American dream. And since then, we know nothing about his whereabouts. And stories of how people went missing in the first place. Roberto, 17 years old, who on Wednesday the 28th or Thursday the 29th of July, 1999, attempted to cross the Rio Bravo, and upon being surprised by immigration, jumped into the water, and according to the other companions, he did not come back out. What struck me the most was the, just the uh, anguish that so many people were going through trying to find people that, were, that had been missing for so long. All of this was overwhelming for Ed. He's a nursing home director, not a detective. I think this is why Ed let me into room 20 in the first place. The reality that so many people are looking for someone they've lost and so desperate to find them. It wasn't just Garage who'd been lost. There were thousands of others who disappeared trying to cross into the United States. To understand how this happened, and still happens, we have to go to the border. Here we are in uh, <clears throat> here we are in Hakumba, and uh, here's the wall that you can uh, hear. That's a wall. Enrique Morones is a migrant rights activist who started Border Angels, a group of volunteers that places water in the desert for people crossing. I've interviewed him about border issues many times over the years. Enrique is a stocky guy in his early 50s. He used to be an executive with the San Diego Padres baseball team. But one day, he gave it all up. Six-figure salary, you, car, six expenses, and you a condo downtown. Angels. And here, the next thing I know, I have no job. About six months later, I had no girlfriend. I have no, uh, yeah, all that. But I've never regretted it. Now, Enrique organizes water drops in the desert. I ask Enrique if I can tag along on one of the tours along the border that he gives volunteers. We're at the Mexico border on the American side not far from where Garage would have crossed before his accident. It looks like a scene from a John Wayne movie, a panorama of scruffy-looking sand dunes that could be mistaken for giant ant hills. The land is dotted with desert scrub, 
bristly and pokey kinds of plants that aren't quite green, but not brown either. There's a dirt road adjacent to where we're standing, where Border Patrol SUVs come and go. Depending on where you stand along this road, the border fence looks different. Because here you see all three. The smaller wall, the taller wall, and no wall. Enrique shows me how people climb over the fence in the places where there is one. So they'll throw a rope ladder up. Instead of taking you 10 seconds to jump over the smaller wall behind us, it might take you a minute or so to jump over this taller wall. I first went to Enrique about Garage's story back in 2015. And that's when I said, what? 15 years? Why hasn't anybody done anything? 15 years. That's a lifetime. Enrique knows the area where Garage would have crossed into the U.S. He says that since the 90s, more than 11,000 migrants have died trying to cross the border. He says thousands more have gone missing. Every single day, people are missing. Every single day, people die, yet you don't hear about it. You don't hear about it. The numbers Enrique shares are difficult to confirm. According to the Border Patrol's own estimates, more than 7,200 migrants have been found dead on the U.S. side of the border in the last two decades. That number is an estimate. It's impossible to account for everyone who dies crossing, and it doesn't include bodies found on the Mexican side. But for Enrique, Garage is more than just another anonymous border crosser. For him, knowing who Garage is, well, it's personal. Enrique knows the villa and the hospital across the street. It's where his father was treated when he was dying. Enrique shows me an old photo of his dad. He tells me about the compassion the people who worked at the hospital showed his father and his family. And there's another connection. Enrique's mother is actually friends with Rafaela, the Rafaela who lives down the hall from Garage. She was riding on the back of her husband's motorcycle when it crashed and is now in a vegetative state. For Enrique, these small connections to the villa are signs that he's destined to become a part of Garage's story. I introduce Enrique to Edgar Patrick while I'm reporting on Garage, and together they form a committee to try to figure out Garage's identity, the first concerted effort in 15 years. Enrique has influence on both sides of the border, so he takes Garage's story to the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol in Washington, D.C., and asks for help. And he gets it. A Border Patrol forensics team is sent to the villa. They take Garage's fingerprints using a digital scanner and run them through a couple of databases. But they come up with nothing. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like I used to be, then not much. But I recently discovered socks that changed the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Bombas are what feet dream about. Their socks are made from super soft, natural cotton, and every pair comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed. And for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. I go running all the time, and I used to just wear regular cotton socks. Now I use the Bombas Performance Running Socks, which are custom-made for runners like me. My feet feel more supported than ever. Plus, the socks come in unique color combinations that make them fun to wear. To buy your own Bombas, Go to bombas.com slash room20 today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash room20 for 20% off. Bombas.com slash room20. Border Patrol agent Chris Harris is also on this makeshift committee searching for Garage's identity. Chris is blonde in his 50s, 
the kind of guy you'd cast as the dad in a TV sitcom. I'm doing well, brother. How are you? You work in Thanksgiving? I asked Chris to take me on his tour of the border, the area he patrols that stretches from the eastern limits of San Diego to the Pacific Ocean. We are at Borderfield State Park, which is a California state park. Chris was among the hundreds of new border agents hired in the 90s under a program called Operation Gatekeeper. It was created to stop immigrants from crossing into San Diego County without papers. But I caught the same group of people three times in one night. They got caught, they got on the bus, went back. We we didn't even put them in any systems because we were just so overwhelmed. In those days, there was just a single fence or nothing at all to mark the border in some spots between San Diego and Tijuana. There is no natural barrier between the two cities, no river or mountain. So this became the busiest and easiest place to cross. Understanding that people don't like the fences, I understand, I grasp that, but when I first started working here, this area was out of control. Back then, migrants streamed through the backyards of San Diego homes. They ran across freeways, sometimes through eight lanes of traffic. So many were hit by cars that yellow warning signs were posted showing the silhouettes of a man and woman running with a child. Under Operation Gatekeeper, agents got new equipment, night scopes, portable radios, and four-wheel drives. They entered the fingerprints of any migrants they caught and put them into a new database called IDENT. With Operation Gatekeeper in place, the number of illegal crossings into San Diego dropped by half in 1999. But that year, in Imperial Valley, where Garage crashed, crossings increased by 700%. Operation Gatekeeper didn't stop migrants from crossing. It just pushed them into more dangerous terrain, out into the desert. Instead of running across neighborhoods, migrants now walked for days across the desert. Temperatures in the summer reached 120 degrees, and in the winter, it was cold enough to snow. People died from the heat and from the cold. They died in car crashes, sometimes trying to flee border patrol. And some simply disappeared. Today, bodies of migrants are still found near the border. In Imperial County, the coroner has cataloged the remains of 202 undocumented immigrants over the past decade. A third of them are unidentified. Chris has an idea. He tells the forensics team to go back to the villa. This time, he says they should ink Garage's fingers, the old-fashioned way, and run the prints through IDENT, the Border Patrol database just in case the Border Patrol had picked up Garage before. Now, they get a hit. A name. And a birthday. His first name? Ignacio. I know his last name, too, but he's undocumented, and revealing his full name could put him in jeopardy. His birthday? April, 1980. That would have made Garage 19 at the time of the crash. But is Garage really Ignacio? Chris isn't so sure. He's interviewed hundreds of people trying to cross the border illegally. He says they often give him fake names. So Chris tells them all the same thing. If you don't want to give me your real name, that's fine. Pick a name you like, because that's going to go with you forever with this system. So even though Garage's fingerprints are in the Border Patrol database, and even though they're now linked to a name, we still don't know whether it's his real name. But Chris has hope. This name is the first solid lead into who Garage is and where he comes from in more than 15 years. To think that there's a family out there that just has no idea what happened to their son, 
their brother, their uncle, maybe, I mean, he was probably 19, I think, Masamenos. Maybe he had a girlfriend, a fiance, or even a wife. Uh, I mean, he could even have children. A few weeks later, I'm in Mexico City, in a cab with Enrique Morones. He's the activist with Border Angels. We're on our way downtown to meet with officials from Mexico's Secretariat of Foreign Affairs. Enrique's arranged this meeting. We're here because the U.S. Border Patrol has given the Mexican government the name they've connected to Garage, so Mexican officials can track down a birth certificate. This is the Lady of Guadalupe on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So you'll see people that are heading towards the shrine. Some of them kneel and go miles and kneeling down, and you'll see it. So what does that day mean? It's two days before Mexicans celebrate the Day of the Virgin of Guadalupe. Catholics travel across the country on a pilgrimage to pray to an image of the Virgin Mary in the Basilica of Guadalupe in Mexico City. From the cab, I see people carrying huge framed pictures of Mary, half the size of their bodies. Some lug statues, pickup trucks are adorned with her image. She is everywhere. And then Enrique and I spot something else from the back of the cab. See the land right there? 66. I know. That was weird. The number 66 on an advertisement. There's signs all around us. Uh-huh. And now Enrique is even more convinced that he's meant to play a role in Garage's story. Once we arrive at the consulate office, the officials tell me to shut off my recorder. Using the Border Patrol's new information from the fingerprints, they've already found people who might be related to Garage, his family. A possible sister living in the U.S. and a possible half-sister in the Mexican state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico. That's where they believe Garage is from, a tiny village in Oaxaca. But before we know for sure that Garage is related to these people, we need DNA confirmation. The possible sister in the U.S. has already submitted a DNA sample. Now they're waiting for the results. At the end of the meeting, I'm allowed to turn my recorder on, and the officials make statements about their commitment to finding Garage's family. Hilda Davila Chavez is the Director General of International Relations for Mexico's Ministry of Health. I want you to express that um, the Mexican Department of Health would very much uh, be interested and be committed to if his family considers have him repatriated to Mexico to live the rest of his life, either in Oaxaca or in Mexico City or where his family decides. I leave Mexico City wondering how long Garage would survive in Mexico, outside of Room 20, without the care he gets at the villa. I got you a Christmas tree. I got you a Christmas tree. You want to see it? It's Christmas 2015. There's still no word about the DNA, so we don't know whether Garage is actually Ignacio. I've decorated Garage's corner of Room 20 as best I can. A silver Christmas tree and a stuffed Santa on his hospital tray table. My Spanish isn't any better, even with weeks of Google Translate to help. How do we say it's a Christmas tree? It's an árbol de Navidad. It's an árbol de Navidad. The staff buys Garage a present, a t-shirt and body wash. I buy him a children's book about a dog, but he shows no interest when I read it to him. A surprise gift comes three days later, on December 28th, in the form of an email to Ed Kirkpatrick. 
It's news about the case. I was just so glad I was sitting down at the time. I mean, I started crying. It was just like, this is unbelievable. The next day, I'm in Ed's office. He's calling the Mexican consulate to tell them the news. Victor, Ed Kirkpatrick at Sharp Coronado. Victor is the official from the consulate assigned to Garage's case. Ed tells him it's a match. The DNA results show with 99.5% certainty that Garage is the brother of a woman named Juliana. She lives in the U.S. She last spoke to her brother in 1999. She's undocumented and has three U.S.-born children. More than 15 years after the crash, Garage is finally identified. Next time, will Garage recognize his name? Ignacio. Ignacio. This show was reported and executive produced by me, your host, Joanne Farian. My senior editor was Susan White. Room 20 was produced by LA Times Studios' Clint Schaff and Camila Victoriano, with production support from Neon Hum Media. Special thanks to Sam Tari and Andy Trimlett for production and research help during my reporting. To discover more about the story, go to latimes.com room20.